The opinions and views expressed in Dead Men Do Tell Tales and all affiliated media are Jordan and Nicole's and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of their training program or others working in the field of medical legal death investigation. Welcome to Dead Men Do Tell Tales, a podcast about forensic pathology related topics. I'm Nicole Groom <laughs> and I'm Jordan Taylor. And we're both pathology residents who are interested in going into forensic pathology. And I just got a kitten, so you might hear Cole jumping around or causing general mayhem. Fair warning. And she just ran right underneath us but looked like she was about to jump <laughs> on my laptop, hence the, the laughter mid name. <laughs> Um, so today we wanted to talk about toxicology. And it's a super broad topic, so we're just going to talk about toxicology in general and then go into a little bit about forensic toxicology specifically, but still at the more general level. Um, And then we're going to have multiple future podcasts with more specifics about different topics. Toxicology (laughs) is the study of the adverse effects of chemicals on living organisms. And a toxin, just a single toxin, is a poisonous substance produced within a living cell or organism. So that's, you know, some small molecule or a peptide or proteins that are going to cause disease on contact with or absorption by body tissues. Um, So, you know, things produced by plants, animals, microorganisms like bacteria, fungi, um, that kind of thing. Versus a toxicant is a any toxic substance. So that could be something that is made by a plant or an animal, or it can be something that is man-made. So cigarette smoke, heavy metals, pesticides, that type of thing. Those are all toxins, which are quote-unquote natural, are toxicants, but not all toxicants are toxins. Clear. Um, And then one other thing that popped up that I thought was funny was an intoxicant, and that's (laughs) something that gets you, quote-unquote, drunk, or, you know, things that will impair the mind and cause a varying state from exhilaration to lethargy. Um, So, like, the beer we're drinking is an intoxicant, and at a high enough level would definitely be a... Toxicant. So I guess it could be a toxin though, because he's yeast. That's yeast does it. produce it. It is a toxin. So yeah. there's no such thing as an intoxin. They're mm-hmm. all intoxicants. <laughs> but they can get you drunk. <laughs> <laughs> so puns. All the puns. So now we're gonna go into a little bit of history. So I got most of my history from Casseray and Duel's Essentials of Toxicology. So in 1500 BC, one of the oldest known writings containing information about numerous poisons was made, and that was the Ebers Papyrus, and it contained information about things such as hemlock, aconite, opium, and metals. And then in 1400 BC, there was the first mention of poisoned arrows in the Book of Job, which I thought was pretty cool. Theophrastus wrote about many poisonous plants in 370 to 286 BC in De Historia Plantarum. I know how much you love your Latin. I love Latin. Yeah, so there's some I love making a fool of myself trying to pronounce it. (laughs) There's going to be some of that coming up, don't worry. (laughs) 
So one of the older stories that I found really interesting was the legend of Roman King Mithridates VI of Pontus, who regularly ingested a concoction of 36 different ingredients to protect himself against assassination. So think like the Princess Bride. Uh, and then he was unable to poison himself when he was captured by his enemies. So he tried peace out before that they oh, could torture him. Oh, he tried to him. kill himself, but then, but then they he couldn't had... because he was immune to a lot of the things. <laughs> yeah. Well so, done, friend. Poor planning. Um, and then in that same kind of vein, Sulla wrote the Lex Cornelia in 82 BC, and that was because of extensive poisonings that were happening in politics. And from that came the first laws against poisoning. Hmm. Yeah. And around in that time frame, you also have Dioscorides, who's a Greek physician. He was in um, the 50s to 60s AD. And he was in the court of the Roman Emperor Nero, which is how I got that time frame. Yeah. And he was one of the first to attempt to classify plants according to their toxic and therapeutic effects. Uh, so then Mamonides in 1198 AD wrote this Tristis on poisons and their antidotes. And he was one of the first people to make note of the fact that if you ingest a toxin toxicant with other substances, it can affect the um, effects of that <laughs> poison. So he wrote about how milk, butter, and cream can delay intestinal absorption of different compounds. I want to know how he tested that theory. Yeah. <laughs> Um, skipping a little bit across the world to, um, ancient India. In 1360, there was a textbook written called the Kagendra Mani Darpana. Um, this ancient Indian toxicology book went into some interesting detail of, like, using gold and ghee as panaceas to counteract toxins. And of the many things it listed, one of the, it's kind of very relevant to the time, and, like, one of the things it said was, these are two plants that could kill war horses, um, <laughs> which I feel Pacific. like isn't something that would be listed in a book today. You know, so it's kind of fun just having being that time frame relevant book on poisons. Yeah, golden ghee. Golden like ghee. Good combo. Some nice uh, buttery on the way down, and then fancy on the way exactly. out. Exactly, because the gold Shiny. doesn't digest. I assume. <laughs> Fancy in and out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then back to the European side of the world, uh, there was Catherine de Medici, and she was a French aristocat. Aristocat. <laughs> that is a movie from Disney. <laughs> the article was throwing you off. <laughs> she is a French aristocrat in the 1500s, and she was rumored to have tested toxic concoctions on the sick and poor. And through those studies, studies, uh, she determined the onset of action, the effectiveness or potency, the degree of response on different body sites, so the specificity inside of action, and also the clinical signs and symptoms of different poisons. But I say rumored because a lot of people think that these were false accusations by people who didn't approve of the French aristocracy. A lot of people in that time. Yeah. Also... Like, the French specifically, and then also women, were, were uh, more rumored to be poisoners, because that's, mm. like, it's the, it's, the woman, it's the woman's way to kill somebody. Right, exactly. So. Because, obviously, we're preparing all the meals, so that's how we're going to do Barefoot it. Barefoot in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What else would we be doing? 
Moving on to about 1500, there is a guy whose full name is Theophrastus Philippus Aurelius von Hohenheim, I think. Um, Better known as Paracelsus, <laughs> which is also a lot easier to say. <laughs> a lot easier to say. Um, he was, he's kind of known as the father of toxicology. His saying that kind of is very much so attributed to him in, in, in non-Latin, um, <laughs> all things are poisonous and nothing is without poison. Only the dose makes a thing not poisonous, which shortened down and kind of the takeaway people have now is the dose makes the poison. So, you know, a little bit of something probably wouldn't kill you, but a lot of bit of something quite possibly might kill you. And a lot of bit of anything could mm-hmm. probably kill you. Very true. Yeah. Um, everything in moderation. Everything in moderation. <laughs> <laughs> But he also worked a lot on occupational toxicology, so exposures that people get when they're at work. Uh, so he wrote about on the minors' sickness and other diseases of minors. Um, and then that was followed up by other people who worked on different occupational diseases, like the association of scrotal cancer and chimney sweeping, which was recognized by Percival Potts. Cool. Not cool, but yes. <laughs> I think. Um, So next we have Matthew Orfila. He is kind of known as the modern father of toxicology, and he wrote the first formal textbook on toxicology, uh, which has two names of the Traité des Poisons or the Toxicologie Générale. So two of the first, two of the more formal modern books on toxicology. Yeah, I also have written down that he is the father of forensic toxicology, so he also used autopsy material and chemical analysis as legal proof of poisoning. So actually he, you talked about him before, Um, he used an arsenic test called the, the Marsh test in a court case in 1840 uh, to get the first conviction for a poisoning, an intentional poisoning as a homicide. The last one that I have, in 1850, Jean Stas um, was the first person to successfully isolate plant poisons from human tissue. He identified nicotine as a poison in a murder case, the Bocarme murder case, which provided evidence to convict the a Belgian court Hippolyte, Vissart de Bocarme, of killing his brother-in-law. With nicotine? With nicotine. Dang. A lot of nicotine. Didn't just want to wait for the cigarettes to do it? I mean, that could take years before the lung cancer (laughs) develops. Then the next thing I had was the 20th century. So the first journal for toxicology, the Archive for Toxicology. Is that German? Uh, Yes, I I believe it was German. (laughs) It was German. Was produced in 1930. And the formation of the FDA occurred with the passing of the Copeland Bill in the United States. And then after World War II, there were a couple more advances in uh, toxicology related to regulation. So there was something called the Delaney Clause that was passed in the U.S., which is also known as the Food Additives Amendment. So it prohibits the use of an additive if it has been shown to cause cancer in humans or animals, which seems like very important thing that maybe should have been passed sooner. Um, And then in 1962, a woman named Rachel Carson wrote a book called Silent Spring about a drug called 
Thalidomide. Thalidomide, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thalidomide is what I wanted to say. Not epididymis. <laughs> the thalidomide incident, which was, quote, one of the darkest episodes in pharmaceutical research history. And pretty quote. accurate. Yeah. So thalidomide, for those who don't know, was marketed as a mild sleeping pill and also a treatment for morning sickness. Um, but turns out that it caused uh, a lot of defects in fetuses. So it caused over 10,000 babies worldwide to be born with malformed limbs in the 50s, 60s. It was actually available prescription-free over-the-counter mm -hmm. in 1956 in Germany and most European countries because the link with birth defects was not officially made until 1961. And the reason why the thalidomide epidemic never quite hit the U.S. was because we had the FDA and they were regulating things. And so this is one of the things that's cited with why it's so hard to push drugs through the FDA nowadays is because, oh, look what happens when you just let things onto the market without proper testing. So some of the basic principles of toxicology is to identify the adverse effects of a substance. So, you know, that's identifying the root of exposure. So are you eating it? Are you inhaling it? Is it getting absorbed through your skin? And then at what dose is it actually bad for you, right? We were talking about nicotine earlier. In very low levels, it won't kill you. But in higher levels, it can definitely kill you both acutely, which is, you know, short-term overdose, quote-unquote, or long-term exposure leading to cancers or something else down the line. So there's two kind of the acute and chronic aspects of dose testing. Things that can affect toxicity. We've already talked about dosage, so how much does it take? What route it goes in? And then there's the generic things like species. So we know what it is in humans, but is it the same in a test animal or something like that? Age matters. It definitely can affect a baby differently than it can affect a normal healthy adult differently than it affects an elderly person. Sex matters and health status. So a sick person, a healthy person might react differently to the same dose of a toxin. So we know that some things are metabolized in the kidney and some in the liver. So if somebody has a kidney disease and something is metabolized in the kidney, that drug is going to build up faster and you might die with less drug than it would take somebody else whose kidneys are working to die from it. Yeah, that's actually one of the things that is the most studied now in the field of toxicology is the interaction of toxicants and genes. So even within uh, the same organ, like if I have more of a specific enzyme that breaks down something in my liver than Jordan has in hers, then a specific compound might affect me differently than her. Yeah, the last one on the list that I oh. was going to mention was individual <laughs> characteristics. So like, yeah. what does a specific person have that somebody else doesn't have? And that could be different um, even within same families. Like it's this totally dependent on what you have, what you were exposed to as a kid, and what machinery is in you. Testing methods, so we need to have standards to decide how much of what poison or whatever will hurt you or kill you. And the three ways to test this are in vivo, which is in the whole animal, in vitro, which is in individual cells or tissues, and then in silico, which is computer testing. And of course, there are a lot of different model organisms that we use. 
One of them is a greater wax moth, which apparently can replace small mammal testing-wise. So it's literally a moth, but somehow this organism can mimic small mammal dosages and things like that for toxicology testing. That's kind of cool. I mean, I hate moths, but that's kind of cool. <laughs> I mean, yes, flying in your face. Ugh, and they're furry and... <laughs> I don't like all furry. Moths? They're like furry. Their bodies are like furry. But they don't like, they're not like furry furry. Like you don't feel fur. They land on you. Mm, maybe you don't feel fur. You <laughs> moths if you land on you. You just like fly in your face and you do that. Like you like wave in front of your face and you're gone. No. No? <laughs> Within this testing world, there's three principles to try to follow, which are the three R's, which is reduce the number of experiments with animals to the minimum number necessary, refine experiments to cause less suffering, and then replace in vivo experiments with other types, like in silico experiments. And then, of course, computer modeling is great. There are some amazing computer modeling that's out there that can completely replace like any chemical reactions and actual in vivo testing, like with artificial intelligence and that kind of thing, in computer modeling and um, like with neural networks and that kind of thing. Yeah. It's pretty pretty impressive. Obviously, we're going to focus on forensic toxicology later on, but just kind of the broad types of toxicology. You have medical toxicology, and that's when you have an MD that's focused on this. So this is, you know, toxicology with diagnoses, management, and prevention of poisoning due to medications, occupational exposures, environmental toxicants. And that's also obviously going to be done by physicians. So that's like emergency medicine, occupational health, pediatrics. So that's poison control. So and so my daughter drank the entire bottle of um, washer fluid. And what do I do? Versus clinical toxicology, which is what a lot of forensic toxicology, people run that forensic toxicology labs are. So those are, you can have an MD, but you can also have somebody with a PhD that does a clinical chemistry fellowship or that kind of thing, running those toxicology labs. So that's, you know, the forensic pathologist might get the specimen and then the clinical toxicologist runs those specimens and analyzes the specimens to get the results. Um, and finally, we have computational toxicology, which is kind of what I talked about a little bit earlier, which is using mathematical and computer-based models to better understand and predict adverse health effects caused by chemicals. So deep neural networks, random forest support vector machines, that kind of thing. What do, what else do toxicologists do? So we kind of talked about um, medical, clinical, and computational. From that, you can get into a lot of subspecialties. So like there's aquatic toxicology and entomotoxicology and food toxicology and pollution toxicology and toxicogenomics. And those are just a few of the subspecialties within tox. Whoa. But there's, you know, a huge amount of different the weeds that you can get into with each subbranch. Yeah. And then, of course, we have forensic toxicology. So forensic toxicology uses the generic principles of toxicology, along with other disciplines like analytical chemistry, pharmacology, clinical chemistry, to aid in the medical or legal investigation of death, poisoning, and drug use. And, of course, they usually are determining which toxic substance are present in what concentration and how that will likely affect the person. 
They also can contribute to epidemiologic and statistical data. So for instance, forensic toxicologists are often the first to notice new epidemics of substance abuse. So we're going to have an episode on this later, but the opioid epidemic and the different types of opioids that are implicated. <laughs> forensic toxicology also <laughs> doesn't necessarily have to pertain to death. So it's anything that has to do with the law. So they can also establish if toxicants are present and capable of causing behavioral changes and then testifying as such. So in cases of driving under the influence, the toxicologist will test those samples and then they can come into court to testify that that is a level that is capable of causing a behavior change. So what specimens do we collect as forensic pathologists and how do those specific specimens go into the toxicologist workflow. So the most common fluid that you think of when you think of getting tox is blood. So that's something that, as Nicole said, you can do with live people too, to get like blood alcohol levels or other drug levels. You can get that in, you can obviously get that from a dead body as well. You can collect both central and peripheral blood, so that central is blood from the heart, whereas peripheral is blood out in the arms, or usually we'll get it from the leg, from the, the big vein up right in your um, groin. And that's because of this thing called post-mortem redistribution. After you die, the drugs that are present in your organs are usually at a higher concentration, and drugs move from high concentrations to low concentrations, so they'll seep out of your organs and back into your blood. Um, and since your central blood that we collect directly from your heart is, you know, directly from your heart, <laughs> uh, it'll have sometimes a higher concentration of a drug and give you this artifactually elevated level compared to if we take it from um, the femoral vein in your leg, uh, which is not directly adjacent to any organs that could be seeping extra drug into your blood. Um, so the next most common fluid that you think of is urine and of course a lot of um, urine drug screens happen in live people so you get hired for a new job and you have to take a urine test to make sure that you aren't doing meth on the way into work <laughs> um, and so urine is actually really good because whereas blood things kind of go into blood can get metabolized and can leave pretty quickly Things can stay in the urine for a little bit longer. Like they have to be metabolized and they get out and your bladder can hold urine for, you know, a decent amount of time and different drugs get metabolized and excreted at different rates. So drugs often remain in the urine longer than they do in the blood. So we talked in a prior episode about non-invasive autopsies and urine can be collected without, uh, as blood can as well, without needing to open up the body. So you can stick a needle in and just collect urine directly from the bladder through a giant needle, which is always helpful. The flip side of urine is that it doesn't necessarily reflect the drug effects at the time of death. So as the drug is metabolized, um, then it'll eventually make it to your urine, but maybe the drug is present in your blood and not in your urine, or the urine often reflects chronic use of something and not necessarily acute use of something so yeah the way i saw it was it, it cannot give an indication of impairment but its presence indicates a prior exposure yeah first blood which we just talked about can tell you kind of the impairment at the time of draw yeah and you mentioned work uh drug screening using urine 
And actually I'm on a clinical chemistry rotation right now and that also includes toxicology and I got a, a lecture about urine drug screening and he mentioned how poppy seed muffins and bagels do actually cause the opioid fla opiate flag to go up. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, they definitely do. That's definitely not one of the things that's just in the news. Yes. Um, but I always wondered if it was just eating one bagel or if you had to eat many bagels chronically over a period of time. But literally, it's just, just one, one bagel. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that episode of Jack did not lie. <laughs> Although... He also said that they have changed the reference standards for those tests. So, so theoretically now, if you eat a bagel, it won't actually flag the test because it won't reach the threshold for positive testing. But what if I eat four mini lemon poppy seed muffins? Then it will flag the test and you can say that. And if they want to confirm, they can look for a compound called, I believe it's thiamine. And so that's present in poppy seeds, but not in opioids mm. synthetic opioids so if they want to confirm they can do that cool you know although the caveat is then you could say well i ate four bagels but you see me <laughs> no then you could if you are doing drugs you could eat four bagels and then also do your drug test and then they wouldn't be able to tell what is what <laughs> stop giving them ideas nicole <laughs> just saying you didn't know. <laughs> long story short poppy seats <laughs> So vitreous humor is the fluid around in your eye, and that is on the spectrum of blood to urine, more like urine. It doesn't tell you about acute intoxication, but it can tell you that something was there before. And eventually, essentially the vitreous humor, if left its stasis, it'll eventually even out to blood, to the same concentration as blood. But given that, you know, your blood keeps getting filtered, and when you're alive, your eyes, your eye cells are processing things and moving electrolytes around. It doesn't, but if you've been dead for long enough, eventually the fluid in your eyes will even out to the fluid in your blood, but that takes a while. Oh. And same for metabolites. So if you've had a drug in your system for a long time, it can eventually even out to what your blood is like. And I think in my reading, I saw that blood alcohol concentration is one of the better drug tests from the vitreous humor compared mm. to other things. Next I have was gastric contents. And so we talked about this in at least one, if not two other episodes. When you look at the fluid in your, in a stomach, there's a few things you can take from it. One is, you know, do you see any food particles, but the other um, in this, more important things is do you see any undigested pills? You can take those pills and a forensic toxicologist can figure out what the drug or drugs in that pill were and you can kind of backtrack with that. You can also take the fluid in the stomach and try to see what drugs were in there, like if something's been slowly dissolved over time. So that's another fluid that we regularly collect is gastric fluid. And the last big category that I had was hair. Um, so hair will tell you long-term or high dosage substance use. So your hair grows at about one to one and a half centimeters a month. So if you take, you know, a 10 centimeter long hair, that's about 10 months worth of growth. So in theory, if you chop it up in one centimeter segments, you can see like what drug use was happening in each month. Again, estimates, everybody's hair grows at different rates slightly, but you can get an estimate darker and coarser hair tends to hold more drug and 
they've said that because of this, there might be a slight racial bias in substance testing <laughs> with hair testing mm-hmm. because thin blonde hair will not hold on to as much drug as thick black hair. Also, hair is subject to external contamination. Mm-hmm. So that's another kind of... So bleach your hair if you're doing (laughs) a lot of drugs, and maybe they won't be able to tell. Now who's giving terrible life advice? Always. It's my (laughs) life goal. And other organisms... Organisms? (laughs) (laughs) Getting organisms later. Other organs that... So those are kind of our ideal fluids that we would take. First two, or the main three, blood, urine, vitreous humor, often gastric fluid... And then sometimes hair. Other things you could take, liver, spleen, brain, pretty much any solid organ you can use and process and see how much drug is in that organ. Also bones, but they're not ideal. Bones, it's true, forever bones. Yeah. But they're not ideal, so that's why you (laughs) forgot about them. (laughs) But if you have a skeletonized body, 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 if you have a skeletonized (laughs) body, (laughs) you can use that and figure it out. Hopefully. Maybe. Possibly. Talk to a French anthropologist about that. Yeah. And finally, on that one, for me, I had kind of other organisms. So you've had a bunch of bugs munching away on that body. You can take those maggots and you can analyze those maggots for toxins and possibly get something from that. Yeah, you talked about that on the first episode where you were saying that they act all wonky when they... They do. They love meth and hate cocaine i can't remember anymore but there's certain drugs that they love and certain drugs that they hate i can't believe you don't remember that that seems like such a great bar trivia question you know yes because that's (laughs) (laughs) what bar trivia have you been going to uh none which is probably why i think that's a great bar trivia question (laughs) just harry potter bar trivia I have not actually been. That is mm. Trent, uh, my boyfriend. He's been going to a lot of Harry Potter trivia nights, which sound really stressful, actually. Really because stressful. They ask so many insane details that... To the point when you think you're a true Harry Potter fan and you're like, I know nothing. Well, I don't think I'm not a true Harry Potter fan because I can't answer those questions. I just don't want to study Harry Potter like a textbook. Yeah, no, it's not a textbook. It's a fun book that I love. Books that I love. Or it's a sacred text. If you follow Harry Potter text. and the sacred text, which... I got through a few episodes and I couldn't keep going. Yeah. But it's good. I also need more time in my life, so that was one of the things that got shot. <laughs> How does the pop filter going to take that? I have no idea. I guess we'll find <laughs> out. So when we collect these specimens, the first thing that we do is we run a screening test. So that's basically just a test to determine whether or not a drug is present. Um, and the typical test that we do for screening is something called an immunoassay. So this test uses um, antibodies to detect the presence of a specific substance, although usually the antibodies target a class of drugs um, rather than specific drugs. Um, And because they're antibodies, they have different sensitivities and specificities. So um, the way they work is they bind to a certain part of the drug, but if that part of the drug looks like other drugs, then it will also bind to those other drugs and flag a positive result. Yes. And you need to have a drug in a high enough concentration for the screening test to catch it. And usually screening tests are made so even low levels can be caught, but you still, 
you have false negatives and false positives with all of these. So the false positive is the cross-reactivity, and the false negative is too low level for this to be caught. Yeah. So that poppy seed bagel, that's an example of a false positive. So it flags the opioid at opiate assay, even though you didn't hopefully have any opiates in your system. And then after that screening test, which, you know, they can do this um, antibody test. They can also do thin layer chromatography. There's other types of tests that they can run on a lot of this stuff. So there's other methods of screening different kinds of drugs. But then, of course, once we have a positive screen, you need to confirm it. So the confirmatory tests are used to confirm it and then to quantify it. And not to get into the weeds on this because this is really interesting and you can get really in-depth, but one of the main things that they use is mass spec or often called GCMS, so gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, um, where you kind of take your, your specimen. So you take the urine, you send it through a gas chromatogram, it sprays out the liquid, and then the mass spec will detect the ionized fluid and be able to quantify it. And you get both a confirmation and a quantification with that. So when we're performing these tests at autopsy, um, we, we do the screening test first, and we typically only screen for the most commonly found drugs, so things like cocaine, THC, opiates, benzodiazepines, um, and then uh, we will do the confirmatory testing afterwards. But if we suspect a specific drug that's not on our screening test based on the autopsy findings, we have to request that specific test to be done. Um, it, it won't be done automatically. Yeah. So if you say you smell almonds at autopsy, then you would test for cyanide. But that's not necessarily something that you automatically go and screen for. Yeah. And actually drug-related deaths are the most common cause of a negative autopsy. So if you don't see anything on the autopsy, um, then more often than not, you will find some sort of toxin related to the death. So that's why a lot of, I know that autopsies cannot be signed out for a while. And a lot of times in forensic pathology, you'll send out your tox screens and it can take months for them to come back. And we often won't sign out a case for a long time. That's because everything is normal except for the drug screen. And you're hoping that the drug screen will tell you something, but you can't sign it out saying nothing's wrong and this person died for no reason until you get that tox result back saying hopefully why they died. So when you're looking for certain drugs, you aren't necessarily, let's say that somebody, you saw them, they were, they had died somewhere and they had a ligature around their arm and they still had a needle in their arm and you think that they overdosed because of heroin. Can you just test for heroin in the blood? Would that be enough? And the answer is usually no. So heroin is gone from the system really fast. It gets broken down really quickly by the enzymes in your body. So within 10 minutes, it breaks down into something that's colloquially called 6-MAM, which is 6-monoacetylmorphine. And then in about 30 minutes, it breaks down into morphine and then into its minor component hydromorphone. So when you're looking at these tests, you don't screen just for heroin. You also screen for its breakdown products or its metabolites, which are 6-MAM, 
morphine and hydromorphone. So when you're screening and then confirming these different drugs, you're not only looking for the well-known drug that goes into your body, you're also looking for what your body turns that into. So some of the things that we can see at the time of autopsy that might make us think about some sort of drug-related or toxin-related death um, not only have to do with the body itself, but also the scene findings. So when we go to the scene and pick up a body, we also look around and see if there are any medications around or if there are any drug paraphernalia. So if we see syringes, powders, um, things like that, then it puts up a red flag that we want to be looking for signs of use um, at the time of autopsy. And then another interesting thing that I hadn't really thought about, um, but determining the manner of death in drug or toxin-related fatalities can sometimes be difficult or confusing. So the manner of death and deaths that are due to chronic use is often considered natural, whereas a death that's due to acute toxic effects is often termed accidental. Um, and then to be able to rule something a suicide requires evidence that the individual took steps to deliberately end their life. So some sort of note at the scene or maybe friends or family testifying as to behavior changes prior to death or if you see signs of a prior attempt at autopsy, so like scars on the wrist from a prior suicide attempt, that could also push you towards one type of manner or the other. I can't imagine that I would manner something that's an acute overdose unless there's a note of suicide. Like if they just had hesitation marks on their wrist from before. There are people that when they're younger would have hesitation marks on their wrist, but as they get older, maybe not. I don't think that would be enough to throw me. Yeah. I'm guessing it would also depend on what other sorts of things you find, how yeah. maybe recent the, the marks were. Like maybe they made the marks that same day, but they weren't working fast enough or they couldn't cut deep enough. Oh yeah. yeah. So not yeah. scars, but actual like yeah. cuts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other things I had were just like some signs of chronic use that you might see that would push you more towards accidental. So if you saw track marks or scars from skin popping, if the patient, uh, if the decedent had poor dental, hygiene, so meth mouth, that could point towards chronic use with maybe an accidental acute intoxication leading to death. One other thing uh, are to always think of herbal substances or natural compounds as potential causes of toxin-related death. So I know I've heard stories of people who forage for food, um, like in Golden Gate Park here, and they accidentally pick something that they think is one type of mushroom, but it's a poisonous type of mushroom, and then they end up in the hospital with acute liver failure. And so the same sort of thing could happen, but they don't make it to the hospital in time. Um, or a lot of people nowadays use homeopathic types of medicine where they have these herbal remedies, but not quite sure what's in them. And sometimes they can be contaminated by things that can cause uh, some sort of acute injury leading to death. And as we said, they're kind of this standard panel that is run for these screening tests. So you really need to have a high pretest probability on some of this stuff because you're not going to think to 
run that mushroom, for example, unless you have a reason to know that they were in the park scavenging. You won't necessarily need a thing to look for that herbal substance unless you were in their home and you saw that they had, you know, a giant <laughs> bottle of herbal substance of the week. <laughs> so you kind of have to use extra clues in it and that this is how, one of the many ways that stuff gets missed. So we figured we would end with a couple of cool stories about medical mysteries and murders related to toxicology. So my story is back in time. We're going to the late summer and autumn of 1900, where Dr. Ernest Septimus Reynolds of the Manchester Royal Infirmary began to see an unusually high number of patients complaining of numbness, pins and needles in the feet and hands, loss of strength and painfulness of the limbs, and the appearance of itchy rashes on the skin. These conditions were commonest in his pauper patients, but what all sufferers had in common was a history of beer drinking. So I thought this story was kind of appropriate for our podcast. (laughs) So alcoholic peripheral neuritis was a common condition amongst the poor in the late 19th century of Manchester. It was characterized by progressive paralysis, dropping of the hands and feet, and extreme tenderness of the soles and leg muscles. By November of 1900, uh, Dr. Reynolds was starting to see nearly 25% of all of his outpatient cases were uh, this, what he was attributing to alcohol. That's Uh, a lot of people. Yeah. (laughs) And that was a vast increase on the usual average instance of approximately 1%. So it went from 1% to 25. That's a lot. Yeah. So he began to investigate and discovered that his colleagues working in other districts of Manchester were also facing similar increases in the incidence of alcoholic neuritis. And so he concluded that they were facing some sort of epidemic. And what he didn't know at the time was that the epidemic was actually outside of Manchester and was pretty much all of Northern England was in the midst of this. Um, And Dr. Nathan Ra recorded a fourfold increase in cases in Liverpool in 1900. Um, And he was seeing a lot of similar things and especially this marked skin pigmentation and eruptions that were associated with this neuritis, which was a bit unusual. So as one medical officer remarked, it was soon abundantly clear that the one thing common to all was beer drinking. That's sad. I like my beer. (laughs) Yeah. But then they were thinking if the diagnosis is uh, alcoholic neuritis, why has it suddenly blossomed into this huge epidemic in such a short period of time because it's not contagious. So they thought maybe there were some events that were happening that were causing people to just drink a lot more. So they were blaming the Boer <laughs> War. <century>. Yeah. <laughs> so they were they were blaming the Boer War and the general election of 1900 for people drinking more. <laughs> it's I mean politics does make me want to drink sometimes, so <laughs> yep, fair. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Another puzzling thing was that while some patients admitted drinking, they nevertheless insisted that their daily alcohol intake was much lower than that usually deemed capable of causing neuritis. Um, People, patients like to lie though. Yeah. (laughs) One of the things they said was at the time, physicians kind of just ignored what they said. And we're, I don't know if you're taught this in med school, but we're also kind of taught the same thing, taking the social history to just kind of always add salt five or six drinks to whatever somebody (laughs) says they intake per week. But as more and more of the patients claimed that they were only moderate drinkers, it became harder to disregard the fact that they were saying they didn't actually drink that much beer. One of the things that Reynolds wrote in his notes was, 
Although it is difficult to get to know the exact amount of beer taken a day, yet I am convinced after careful inquiry that in some cases, at least not more than four glasses a day have been consumed. Which four glasses a day definitely seems like a lot. Also back then, like the, the water beer was a lot weaker. All, well, I was going to say the water wasn't as good or as clean, so people tended to drink beer instead of water. So yeah. a lot of it's probably that, too. True. I just thought his threshold for That's true. <laughs> what was a lot of beer. Yeah. So then Reynolds began to look for an alternative cause, and one key symptom of the neuritis epidemic that they were seeing was this extreme tenderness of the muscles, especially the large muscles of the limbs. And this type of tenderness was typically associated with only three types of neuritis. Alcohol, beriberi, and arsenic. Mm. So his major breakthrough was to connect some of the cases of neuritis to this skin discoloration, and only one of those substances was known to cause peripheral neuritis with extreme muscular tenderness and skin discoloration, and that was arsenic. Nice. So he realized that people who drank only hard liquor had actually remained unaffected by the neuritis epidemic, no matter how much alcohol they consumed. So... He then postulated that it was probably the beer and not the alcohol that was leading to this exposure. And at the same time, these two other guys, Tattersall and Delapine, found that the source in the beer was sugar. So they were using this process um, of sugar production with sulfuric acid, and that sulfuric acid was contaminated by arsenic, and it was mm. all coming from a single manufacturer huh. called Bostock and Company. And they supplied 200 breweries in the north of England, mm. so all of those breweries were affected by this um, contamination. So by January of 1900, the extent of the arsenic epidemic was clear, and the final total number of chronic arsenic poisoning sufferers was estimated at 6,000. That's a lot of arsenic. Yeah, with upward of 70 cases proving fatal. Although they think that the number is probably a lot higher because at the time they were attributing the deaths to alcoholic neuritis when it was probably actually this chronic arsenic poisoning. So yeah, I thought that was a really interesting story and a lot of stories of homicide I think people typically associate with kind of arsenic, at least back in the day. So it's kind of interesting to see this yeah. big outbreak. That is cool. Yeah. All right, so I wanted to talk about the Chicago Tylenol murders. Now, I know if a lot of people listen to a lot of the other murder podcasts and whatnot, this has been thrown around, so I'm going to briefly summarize the actual murders themselves and then kind of go into the toxin. So in 1982, in the Chicago metropolitan area, there was a series of people that had died suddenly. So the first one was September 29th, 1982. This 12-year-old girl, Mary Kellerman, woke up with a sore throat and runny nose. She went and complained to her parents, like all kids do. And her parents gave her an extra strength Tylenol and told her to go back to, to go to bed. Um, but when she took that Tylenol capsule, she immediately collapsed. They brought her to the hospital and she died shortly thereafter. Later that day, there was a postal worker, Adam Janis, who was 27, who was having some chest pain. So he went and he took an extra strength Tylenol. And then he died, dropped immediately and died three hours later. The following day, September 30th, Mary McFarland, who was a 35-year-old woman, was having a headache at work. She took an extra-strength Tylenol capsule from her purse from a closed bottle and took one tablet, and she died within minutes before EMS even got there. Now we're going to backtrack to that second guy who I mentioned, Adam Janis. His family came into town after he had passed to you know mourn his death, and his younger brother Stanley 
and Stanley's wife, Teresa, had a headache, so they went to the bathroom to take some Tylenol. They both took Tylenol. Stanley drops almost immediately. No. Teresa calls 911, is saying that Stanley isn't doing great, saying these symptoms that he's have, he's foaming at the mouth. EMS comes, and by the time they get there, Teresa is also down. Ugh. And EMS notices that her symptoms are kind of slightly delayed from her husband's. Um, they both get transferred to the hospital. Stanley dies shortly thereafter, and then the next day, Teresa dies. October 1st, the following day, which is the day that Teresa had died, Mary Reiner, who is 27, was caring caring for her infant child, who had been born a week ago, took Tylenol, no. died instantly. Don't do it. And then the final one, there was this woman, Paula Prince, who's 35. She was a flight attendant. She stopped by a drugstore, and nobody heard from her for a while. And so they went to check her apartment. And two days later, they found her dead in her apartment. And they actually saw a bottle of Tylenol open on her bathroom sink. So there were a few people that started to notice some. So on October 2nd, which is a day after this, there were two firemen, Richard Keyworth and Lieutenant Philip Capitelli, who came up with this theory that given that so many of these calls were happening, people were dying suddenly, they had been noticing that Tylenol had been mentioned along with these and I don't remember the name of the forensic pathologist, but one of the podcasts I listened to talked about how there's a forensic pathologist that started smelling bitter almonds, which we had mentioned is associated with cyanide. Mm-hmm. And so then they tested the body. They also tested the Tylenol in all these people's apartments that they had or houses that they had found. And they found that they had all had potassium cyanide in them. So this was all between September 29th and October 1st, seven people died suddenly. And the FDA was looking at stores in the area and they tested a lot of this Tylenol and they did find contaminated bottles in several drugstores. Of note, the only bottles that had contaminated Tylenol were in the Chicago metropolitan area. And on October 2nd, Mayor Jane Byrne bans a sale of Tylenol in Chicago on October 4th, two days later, Johnson & Johnson announced that they stopped producing these extra-strength Tylenol capsules on October 1st. So they had actually stopped back when these were all happening, when the first associations were starting to come up. And then on October 5th, there was a massive recall of Tylenol huh. of all these extra-strength capsules. Good corporation. Yes. There's actually... This is like one of the hallmarks for how you do PR. <laughs> like it's a case study that people regularly study nowadays. Oh, like because, in business school? Yeah, in business oh, school cool. because this is how you should do it. And uh, quickly on that note, when this started, Tylenol had 35% of the market share for over-the-counter drugs. And that dropped to less than 8% very quickly Wow, due to all of this. But within a year, they had invested more than $100 million, and they were back up to, like, the first place in over-the-counter drugs. Really? Um, pushing. So these were all capsules. So these were the gelatin capsules. And people liked them because they were slicker, they were easy to swallow, but they're also easy to tamper with. So you can open it, dump out the drugs, oh. and put cyanide in there. And one of the things that came from this is when you open a bottle of Tylenol now, there's a box that it's in, right? And the mm-hmm. box is glued. And then there's a wrapper around the top of the bottle, like a um, shrink wrap, yeah. plastic wrapper. <laughs> and then you open the top, and then there's that foil induction seal yep. on there. And that all came around because of this. None of that existed before. So this person was able to go in, take out this Tylenol, replace it with cyanide, and put it back in. So a lot of 
really good things came out of this, but it was just a horrible, horrible series of death. And of course, that one poor family had three people that died within two days of each yeah. other. Oh, and also interestingly, if the cyanide had been left in those capsules for too long, the cyanide would have eaten through the gelatin capsules. So these all had to be like within 72 hours oh. of him putting, of this murderer putting them on the shelves. And the last note I'll make on this case is they still don't know who this was. There's a lot of theories, but they still haven't caught the guy. Maybe there'll be a deathbed confession, but at this point, probably they're not going to catch them with investigative skills. But I did want to talk on cyanide a little bit. So potassium cyanide, which is the thing that these people all took, is a colorless crystalline salt. It kind of just looks like sugar. And normally it's used for gold mining, organic synthesis, electroplating, and of course it can give off this smell that's like bitter almonds, that you have to have a particular mutation, a particular allele, in order to smell it. Like not everybody can smell the bitter almond smell. So some forensic pathologists have a, have a leg up in the game. Yeah, I really want to know <laughs> if I can order a kit or something, because yeah. I know even just smelling cyanide can be toxic, so you, I don't want to actually like go and smell cyanide. I just want to see if I have this mutation. On that note, if you do get exposed to cyanide, <laughs> so how can how can you get exposed to cyanide? Obviously, there, there are cyanide exposures that aren't somebody taking a pill that was changed out with cyanide. So residential fires, industrial accidents, there's cyanide or things that could be turned into cyanide everywhere and when things get burned they can give off cyanide of note if you're exposed leave the area take off your contaminated clothes shower wash yourself get rid of those clothing get and get yourself to medical help and we'll talk about medical help in a little bit but what does cyanide do so cyanide inhibits a particular enzyme called cytochrome c oxidase that is involved in cellular respiration so the step where your body turns oxygen into water it blocks that, so your body's no longer using oxygen. So when you look at somebody who is being poisoned with cyanide, they actually have plenty of oxygen, just their body can't use that oxygen because it's being stopped at the last step in producing energy. And now you're not producing energy. You have plenty of oxygen, but you're not producing any energy, so all of your metabolic processes, your body stops, even though there's plenty of oxygen there. You'll kind of feel dizzy and lightheaded, nausea, vomiting, fast heart rate. And one of the first signs is your skin starts to get red or ruddy. Is that what they like to call it? Hmm. So your skin looks red or ruddy because you have a lot of oxygen in your blood cells. Like you're, there's plenty of oxygen, but it can't use that oxygen. So if you're, you know, using an O2 sat, your the finger oxygen measurement, you're still going to have plenty of oxygen. Just you're it's useless. There are antidotes. So the first step is always just oxygen, because if you breathe in more oxygen, it can displace the cyanide. So if, like once the cyanide starts to get displaced, if you kind of overload it, the oxygen will eventually displace the cyanide. But it can take some time. But there are antidotes in the meantime, hydroxycobalamin, sodium thiosulfate, sodium nitrate. There are IV drugs that can help get rid of this, but... Get yourself away from the exposure and get yourself into a hospital is a long story short. And then last thing I want to talk about is, um, or two more things I want to talk about. One is what is cyanide used for besides those normal industrial, industrial practices? Professional entomologists use this actually in the fumes can kill bugs. So if it's like something that 
is very fragile and you don't want to have to handle it like they want to preserve a specimen, they can put cyanide in with the bugs and the bugs will die. Oh. But they'll, like, be able to preserve the bodies. Oh, for, like, tests and stuff? For tests and stuff, but also, you know, for the pin boards. Oh. For, like, display specimens. That makes more sense. Yeah. And then, of course, you always hear about, like, the cyanide capsules that, you know, spies, when they get Mm -hmm. caught, they can pop the cyanide capsule under their tongue and die pretty immediately, as the Tylenol murders showed. Or Um, if you're the bad guy in Skyfall, it just melts your face off. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And then, of course, like, cult suicides, mass suicides. Everybody gets a cyanide tablet. Um, And then, how do you detect it? There's a bunch of different ways to test this. So there's, like, color change tests. Um, Certain luminols can actually um, chemiluminesce. Mass spec can detect it. But we don't really have a good point-of-care test. And a point-of-care test is, like, um, when you take a glucose test. So you prick your you prick your skin, you get a little blood, and you find out very quickly what the level is. We don't really have a good point-of-care test for cyanide, which seems like it would be very helpful because you could detect this and then these IV drugs actually work pretty quickly. But we don't have one yet, and I think there are a couple that are under development for it. Huh. But, yeah, so cyanide was is a very easy means to to kill somebody but in this case you know there were seven people that died suddenly they were all young there was no real reason to know that they were why they had died like a 12 year old girl is just a little bit sick and a postal worker you know is having some chest pain so did he die of a heart attack but he's 27 who dies of a heart attack at 27 unless you're on a lot of coke um or you have a genetic or you have a genetic abnormality with your heart And there were seven of these people in rapid succession. And between this forensic pathologist smelling bitter almonds, seeing the Tylenol caplets on scene, and the firefighters noticing this trend, we don't test for cyanide regularly. So it's not something you would think to look for. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Those were our two interesting stories related to uh, forensic toxicology. So if you enjoyed the episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. It's how we get our ratings boosted in iTunes so other people can find us. And if you want more information about what we talked about in this episode, we link to all of our sources in our episode guide on our website, deadmendotellpodcast.com. You can connect to us on social media, at on Twitter, on at deadmendo. And on Instagram at the Dead Tell Tales. And we also have a Facebook page, Dead Men Do Tell Tales Podcast, which I definitely forgot to update and need to do. <laughs> uh, and finally, you can send us an email with either suggestions or questions or corrections at the Dead Tell Tales at gmail.com. And our music was Introducing the Pre Roll by Lee Rosevere, who you can find on SoundCloud. So, special shout out to them. Thank you all for listening. Bye. Bye.